Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How you doing? How you feeling? I'm okay. Guess what I'm doing tomorrow? Well, tomorrow. Guess what I did yesterday based on when people are going to be hearing this? <laughs> um, I don't know. I can't. I mean. Starts with a V. Starts with a V. Starts with a V. Vac. Vaccination? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's great. Yes, I got my appointment. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, that's great. That's great. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. So, yeah. so glad to hear that. Yeah, it's really, it is great. And it's nice to have this like cascading situation where like everybody is kind of going through this same kind of process and we're watching the effects in the numbers. So that's nice. But how are you? Great, great. I'm now what they say, what they call fully vaccinated. It's been two weeks mm-hmm. since my vaccination. I'm seeing, you know, all of the this reporting from the CDC that's saying, uh, you know, if you're in America and you've been double vaxxed, uh, you can stop wearing your mask. And it's kind of making me annoyed because it's not exactly what the CDC guidelines are, but that's how it's right. being reported. And it's just frustrating. You know, I just, I, I want us to be better at how we uh, communicate really uh, specific public health guidelines because it's so dangerous for some people. But uh, suffice to say, I'm still wearing my mask if and when I go out, uh, but I'm feeling really good about the fact that I have been double vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Have you been licking any doorknobs or celebrating with any kind of like disgusting habits coming back? Is that a white culture thing that I just don't understand? <laughs> licking doorknobs no I have not been licking any doorknobs Uh, okay okay I'm I'm living the same COVID life uh um you know just trying to be as careful as possible until we get a little bit more information because you know LA County right now is at just about 60 percent of people have one vaccination. Wow. And just just about 50% have two vaccinations. So it's really slowed down, uh-huh. um, which is, you know, concerning public health wise. Why has it slowed down? Um, and we are not quite off of lockdown. We're in the, the last level of, you know, there's like five levels of lockdown and we're in the, the easiest, the, e- the easiest one, which is like, 25% capacity at restaurants and so on. And so we're still in it, you know, um, uh, just because uh, vaccinations have been going fairly well doesn't mean that this is quite over yet. And, you know, we don't want to do what has happened so many times, which is getting excited about the numbers and moving uh, too quickly to make changes before we really should. Right. So, yeah. Not much has changed here, but I'm still feeling really encouraged by, um, you know, uh, just all of this progress and moving forward. So that's good. Yeah, it's really great. It's It really is great. And I think I saw this past week that LA has had a couple of days without any deaths, which um, Canada is not so lucky. Of course, there have been some parts of Canada that have been that lucky, but really, really looking forward to that death count starting to hit zero finally. Yeah, that'll be really wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. You know what else is wonderful? Mm. All of the support we get from our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have some folks to thank? Oh my god! Okay, so tonight it's not some folks; it's like a full-on fucking grade three class of folks. What? Okay. Oh my yeah. god! So everybody, hold on to your hats. We have got so many people to thank uh, uh, today, 
And so thank you for your support to Vanda, Mireille, Eileen, Jeannie, Yvette, Kieran, Christian, Jay, Ali, Tomoko, Alyssa, Corey, Stephanie, Bonnie, Zoe, Rebecca, Ariel, Brandon, Stuart, Awesome A, Ruth, Morgan, Heather, Haley, and Peter. Thank you so much, everyone. This is just like, you know, amazing. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. We, we totally appreciate all of your support. And I mean, today we're going to get into some pretty heavy topics, um, some of which are in part related to COVID. But before we do that, we wanted to just mention a couple things that are going on. So, Nora, Quebec Solidaire. Yeah, yeah. So this past weekend was the National Council of Quebec Solidaire, which is a left-wing political party in Quebec, of which I'm a member. And there's this really weird decision that the national executive made. So there is uh, Quebec Solidaire has commissions and caucuses and collectives. And collectives are like the least formally organized group of um, people coming together. And you can form a collective for any reason, pretty much. And uh, there's a, a very basic approval process. But after that, they're kind of like open and loose structures. And the idea of the collectives, of course, is that people can organize on specific issues and they can find other people within the party that care about whatever issue it is that they're organizing around. So at the last National Council, which was in 2019, uh, the the National Council approved the existence, the creation of a collective that was called the Anti-Racist and Decolonial Collective. Mm -hmm. So in the last year... You know, Quebec's leader has not been great on questions of race, um, even though at that, that that 2019 National Council, we, we, we mobilized and passed this really great motion to change our position on religious symbols. Uh, the party didn't really organize like around Bill 21. Like Quebec's leader is not at the forefront of like anti-racist organizing in Quebec City, for example. Um, and I'm not even sure I've seen folks from QS really at like the Bill 21 rallies all that much. Um and so, you know, the, the collective has been like increasingly frustrated with um, some of the things that the leadership has said and some of the lack of action. And it all came to a head when um, there was a tweet from someone called Amir Adaran, who people might know. He's a bit of a dick. Um, but he said, like, Quebec is like the most racist place in North America, like next to Alabama or something like this. And the leadership like quickly was like, this is Quebec bashing rather than like, you know, Adaran's a shithead. But like, let's engage with what he's saying. And the collective called them out. And so that kind of started the spiral of the collective making public statements and QS denouncing the collective in the press. Um, the collective talked about white supremacy within uh, the media. They, I think they called um, uh, the leader of the Parti Québécois a fascist or a journalist a fascist. There was like some very pointed words that were being used. Um, and then the party was like, this is, this is bad. This is bad. You have to stop this. Jeez. And so it all kind of came to a head when the the party decided to like send out a, a I don't know some sort of communique or something to explain like its dis dissatisfaction with the collective. The collective wrote to the national executive saying, "We understand you're going to do this. You should not do this. The letter's diff defamatory, and you know we won't hesitate to like go to the Human Rights Commission over this." The national executive was like, "Whoa, a cease and desist order," even, even though it wasn't. But anyway, they called it that, and decided to slip in after the last time that most of the writings have had uh, the, the debate on the amended motions package, a motion to censure the collective. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so what happened after that was that the motion of censure became the only story the journalists were talking about because, of course, journalists were implicated in this whole story before because of the charges of fascism or white supremacy within media. And, you know, the two co-spokespeople of the collective, like one is a woman who wears hijab, who's taken like an incredible amount of shit for being a candidate in an election in this province. The other co-spokesperson is an Inuit woman who also was a candidate um, in the last election. And, you know, like the look is really bad. <laughs> yeah, no um, shit. And so they put this. Yeah. So they put this motion of, of, of censure towards the membership. A lot of writings, my writing included, did not have the opportunity to debate this. So there was no direction that we could give to our delegates for how to vote on this. Uh, and the party's 90 percent white and francophone. Oh, great. And look. so, yeah. Right. And so, um, like, let, not, let alone the, the press conference that started the National Council, the only kind of thing that was that came out into the press was one of the co-spokespeople saying, this this motion of censure, I, I support it and it's going to pass. And you're like, why are you saying that? This fucking looks really bad. And then it passed at 75 percent. What? what? Oh, my God. Yeah. It, wow. Hmm, OK. Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned this because, I mean, I'm simplifying it. There's like, as you can imagine, there's personality issues here. Um, the national executive has charged that the collective has engaged in harassment and intimidation and legal threats. And that's been the, the, the chorus that you've seen, like in the online debates on and on that the collective is harassing, discriminating, harassing and uh, and threatening the uh, national executive. But it's just so weird because it's like there's no discussion of power, like as if the national executive and the collective are like the same level of like activists, you know, in the party, which they obviously are not. And yeah, and it's it's just a reminder to me that like we need to be really pushing, you know, especially white people who like like are engaged in anti-racism work. We need to be pushing other white people to be like showing them what this really looks like from outside because a lot of them are really like focused on the personalities and like, no, no, you don't understand. This person actually said this and this person actually said this. And this is actually what's happened. And it's like, no, 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 that really, I mean, they, they could have done way worse and this still would have been unacceptable. And so I don't know what it's going to look like because the vote only just happened. Yeah, well, also, you're not censuring a person. You're, censure, you're censuring the collective. That's... Yeah. Very bizarre. So that's it. Okay. Well, good to know about that. I, the thing that I have been obsessed with over the last few days, like to the point where, like, I'm really going to struggle with this civil rights exam because I've been so ex obsessed <laughs> with, with this, is I made this tiny little kind of innocuous tweet uh, about a week ago. Colin Kaepernick uh, re-announced this book on abolition, and the cover of the book, uh, uh, he tweeted it, and it is a riff on an old Emery Douglas piece, uh, and essentially it is uh, a, a dark-skinned black woman who is carrying some newspapers that say abolish the police, and so he announces, we're publishing this book, abolish the police, and and the responses to it, there's so many bot-like responses that are just like, <laughs> it's, it's, I thought it was kind of funny and ridiculous. It's just like, why have you used this image of a dark-skinned black woman um, uh, to, to promote this? Black women are not against the police, and we never have been. And it's like, <laughs> what? Um, 
what? So much abolition writing, thinking, um, talking about being anti-carceral, anti-police, anti-prison, like comes directly from black women. So I just, I was like, this is hilarious. And so I I retweeted it and just said, this is really funny that, uh, you know, whoever's programmed these bots, like doesn't, doesn't even understand what a right wing black woman's response to this would be because it wouldn't be this. Like, this is just not born in reality. Um, uh, so I tweeted something uh, that I thought was kind of innocuous and so did the world for the first two days uh, because who cares? And then all of a sudden, I started getting all of the bots. And, um, you know, maybe they're bots B-O-T. Maybe they're bots B-O-U-G-H-T-S. Ooh, like, as in that was nice. accounts. Thank you. You know, I've been thinking about this for a minute, bot, bot accounts. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of them do feel more like actual people. And then maybe part of that is because the bot strategy is working. But basically, they're all saying the they're all acting the same and doing similar things that make me think that they're bots. So one is that they have the same message over and over and over to me. So which is black women aren't anti-police, uh, black men are, and they are trying to make it seem like black women are. Uh, black women have never been anti-police. Uh, using a dark-skinned woman to promote abolitionism puts dark-skinned women in danger. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, Colin Kaepernick um, and men like him uh, will date and fuck light-skinned women, but only um, see dark-skinned uh, women in their utility as, like, really aggressive. And that black women are pro-police because black women uh, experience gender-based violence from black men. So I, I was like, whoa, all of this all happening at the same time. And then I start to look into it, and I notice some other things. One, all of these bot accounts are liking everything Every tweet that is tweeted at me, they're going back and liking every single one. That's one thing um, uh, that is on this same uh, messaging. They're all tweeting at me that they're not bots. Most of them, I would say like 85%, uh, their photos are like either a cartoon or some image that they've grabbed from the internet. Um, None of them are like actual photos. Uh, or very few of them are actual photos. And uh, most of them have some really weird stats in their tweets. So things like maybe they will have joined in 2012, but there are no tweets available before November of 2020. And a lot of these, the activity around these tweets either start or coalesce around November of 2020, which is significant, of course, because that is when the American election took place. And um, the numbers and data after the American election suggest that uh, black women by and large voted in one particular way. And so it is not altogether weird to think that someone out there has thought we have to create some sort of um, uh, oppositional consensus, uh, some sort of conservative consensus am- among a pocket of black women or make it seem like that is uh, something popular. Very, very weird. Another weird thing is that they all started calling me Mammy, which, <laughs> oh. yeah, like this idea of 
a, a black woman who supports uh, abolition is a mammy, which doesn't make sense for the for the uh, the the actual use of the term mammy. But they're all calling me that, and the usage of that on Twitter um, as an idea begins at the beginning of May. It's not it's not anywhere else, not any time else. So anyway, I just thought, wow, this is regardless of whether they're bots or actual people, it's clearly coordinated. And I, you know, I just hope that somebody is looking into this because this is just seems so fucking bizarre. Well, it's, it seems like um, like the like questions that I have are like, what is the purpose of this? Like, as you say, it's to build some sort of political consensus in one way or the other. But then then it's like, OK, but who's paying for it? and Who's behind this? And why don't we know more about it? Like, why don't we know Twitter's more? Twitter's been around for fucking ever. How don't we know more about, like, suspicious behavior like this, where terms will come out of nowhere, where groups of people come out of nowhere, where accounts are dormant forever and then not dormant all of a sudden and purchased right in time for the fucking U.S. election? I mean, I, I, I also saw some very weird um, bots as well, all coded as black individuals and all, like, being angry that I wrote an article about how the um, anti-mask movement ha- ha- is a white supremacist movement. And every every individual that responded to me had some sort of like riff on you as a white woman are putting my black comrades in danger at BLM because they also had their movement hijacked by extremists in Antifa. <laughs> it's like, what kind of math is that? <laughs> So although everyone that responded to me had pictures, they were actually pictures of people. Some of the pictures I was able to like track down and be like, this is not you. And some I couldn't. And I was like, whoa, what is going on here? Yeah, I was able to track down some of the photos, too, and to verify that they're not the individuals who are responding to me. So it was was all very, very strange. Um, And it's still going. It's been going for days. It's like, who cares about this? This was tweeted like last week. Why are you still interested in this? So something's happening there. I hope that there's a journalist out there who's interested in it. Um, But we do need to switch gears because we wanted to to talk uh, with you all about what is happening internationally right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of conflicts happening in the world, and we kind of wanted to talk a- about um, how it's being discussed in Canada or how it's not being discussed in Canada. And so there are three places we're particularly interested in discussing. And so one is Colombia, one is uh, Tigray, and one is Palestine. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me that that the moment that the pandemic starts to, I don't know, like uh, seem like it's almost over, whether whether or not that's actually true on the ground, the, the existence of the vaccine certainly allows people in power to act as if the pandemic is over. And therefore, let's go back to normal. And so in Colombia, you have a, a, a government that was trying to raise taxes disproportionately on low-income and middle-income Colombians, and this incredible um, street festival-like set of protests erupted, mostly led by young people, to then face, like, violence uh, at the hands of police. And, you know, almost 50 people at least have died uh, so far. And, 
I don't know if anybody listening knows about this, but I I certainly uh, have seen more about Colombia just by being in a rally for Palestine where local Colombians also came with their placards to, you know, remind Canadians to also look at what's happening in Colombia. And I was like, oh, right. Like, yeah, we also should be paying attention to that. Yeah, I... You know, it's it's really quite stunning that we haven't heard more information, just given how much uh, Canada has going on in Colombia in terms of uh, uh, of mining operations there. We really should have an idea what's going on. We should have people um, in terms of journalists stationed um, in Colombia to, to tell us what's happening. But I think CBC has only published three or four stories total. And this is a conflict that's been going on. Um, these, these protests and violent repression has been going on for over two weeks. And the situation is really dire. I mean, COVID was so bad in Colombia that, um, you know, there was this movement of people who started to put uh, red flags or red rags out, outside of their windows to denote that they were really hungry, like that they couldn't afford food. It was it was devastating. And then so for the government to announce this tax um, that was really going to impact people's ability to uh, take care of themselves uh, in in. Uh, upon recovery, um, of course, people took to the streets, of course. And some of the same things that we see here in terms of giving extra powers to the police uh, to be, um, you know, levying fines to people who are um, interacting with one another out on the streets during COVID. We were seeing that happen in Colombia as well. But it's gotten so awful, like the police had a truck that they were using to attack protesters in the same manner that, you know, that we've seen in other places with civilians attacking protesters with their trucks, like trying to run people over, the police. They had um, helicopters that were shooting at people from the sky. Like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what's happened there. Um, and the facts that you know, can it, like part of the way that the economy works and how exploited uh, certain communities are in Colombia works is because of um, how, uh, you know, countries like Canada and operations like um, the mining operations that we have in Colombia uh, uh, exploit uh, people and, and you know, taking raw materials and leaving people uh, destitute um, is, is uh, you know, that's, that's a responsibility of Canada. And we should have an understanding of that, but we don't. Like, it's, it's not only do we not have that understanding, it is apparently not worth covering. And that is really, really unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. And so let's talk about what's happening in the in Tigray, which is a region of Ethiopia. Uh, I certainly have seen people posting about this on Twitter and telling, you know, the world to pay attention to what's happening in Tigray. Um, I haven't seen it reported in Canada at all. I mean, maybe an article, but it's hard to know because I've just seen it from my Twitter feed. So an article I saw may have been from another for another country, but 
In uh, in November, the Ethiopian government uh, started uh, military attacks on the Tigray region, and um, this has led to the displacement of millions of people. Um, there have been uh, tens of thousands of people who fled to the Sudan, and a lot of people are charging that this is ethnic cleansing. Uh, it it's you know you've got on one side you've got the government. On the other side, you have the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which was a group that had actually controlled government before the current government. So, I mean, you don't have to think too hard probably about how those kinds of tensions you know, erupted. And um, again, it's it's something that we're not hearing anything about in Canada. And, you know, Sandy, you, you said, like, where are journalists, where are foreign bureaus and this kind of thing? It's like, you know, Canada has such a paltry amount of foreign bureaus anymore that they just they don't exist. They they're they're only oriented towards like like what does the CBC have? Like Rome and London and then obviously Radio Canada and Paris and Russia, but it's like where else? Like we don't we don't even have a Middle East bureau <laughs> anymore. Uh, in considering what's going on there, um I mean, I guess it's maybe safer for our journalists to not be there and attacked by the Israeli government, but um with they probably wouldn't actually be attacked because they do a lot of work um, helping Canadians understand that um, that genocide really as being a two-sided conflict. And, you know, we like I, I feel like in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe even, maybe even a little bit more than 10 years, there has just been such a lack of understanding of like foreign and international relations and how they impact Canada. And the only way that we have been seeing this kind of story has been told through Canada's military engagement. So sure, we've mm -hmm. heard about Syria and Iraq mm -hmm. and a little bit about Mali. Uh, we've heard a little bit about Ukraine and whatever the fuck Canadian soldiers are doing there. But by and large, we don't really hear about, uh, quote unquote, conflict um, unless there's a flashpoint event that the entire world is paying attention to uh, or if there's like a direct situation where Canada is implicated, like the Canada-Saudi relationship. And, you know, one of the questions that I have that I feel like every Canadian needs to know is are we selling arms to these countries? You know, the, in, in the last week, Jagmeet Singh stood up in the House of Commons and condemned and called for an end to Canadian military exports to Israel, which, by the way, got quite a shout out at the local rally in Quebec City. Protesters here were like very, very happy about that and gave Singh a very big shout out. But, you know, we know that there's a lot of connections between Canada and Latin America as well. And so are Canadian weapons being used in Latin America? Are, are Canadian tanks being used in Colombia? Uh, what are the relationships between our military or our police forces and and their military and their police forces? Is there a training relationship? Are there any resources being shared? You know, like there's just so many questions, especially um, especially considering what the current government's approach to a country like Venezuela is, which is like, whoa, like all hands on deck to get rid of the socialists in Venezuela. And we will do everything that the United States says that we should do. You know, we had a little bit of coverage on Venezuela. It also was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and we haven't even talked about the biggest conflict, which we will talk about, um, uh, of the week. Um, but the, just the lack of attention, it just all it does is it erases it from from the from most Canadians minds for the Canadians who are directly impacted by these uh, conflicts, you know, it weighs on them 
deeply. It weighs on them economically. It, it's, an, it's an emotional toll. And, and through that, it becomes a Canadian issue. But then our politicians are completely left off the hook to never, ever have to deal about this. They don't have to talk about it. And no one's standing up and saying, are you, the Canadian government, allowing arms exports to Colombia, for example? Yeah, it's it's absolutely unacceptable also because of, you know, uh, the fact that there are so many communities uh, in Canada that are from all of these different places who, one, need to have the information. Um, and but, you know, two, we as just being so involved in, in global conflict generally as uh, as a country, we should know what the fuck is going on and what relationships we have. Like there are also Canadian mining operations in Ethiopia. Uh, and right now, um, the government I- I- in Ethiopia is uh, restricting access to aid for people uh, who have been um, targeted uh, by this ethnic cleansing. And it's just, why are we not <laughs> talking about this? I do not understand. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's really, really quite frustrating. A number of, of activists and people uh, in Canada who have been doing so much work to try to get the word out um, uh, people from the Colombian community, people from the Tigrayan community who've been doing so much work trying to get this word out. Um, and, uh, you know, I commend those people for, for doing all of this work in the face of what really feels like when the media isn't paying attention to these atrocities, it feels like indifference. And, uh, you know, knowing some version of that, uh, being an activist for, for black people in, in Canada, it's, it's devastating to feel like you don't, your issues don't, um, or the, the very real repression that your community is facing doesn't deserve even the slightest bit of attention is really devastating. It is, uh, it's psychologically, um, uh, destabilizing and then to also continue to do all of this work on top of that is really, really hard. So I want to commend uh, all the activists who have been really, um, you know, uh, pushing to make sure that people understand this stuff and just for the journalists who are listening to really, I don't know, something's got to change. Uh, we, we need better coverage, uh, um, uh, for, for these, for these issues that are so, um, just so, so violent and, and hard, uh, to, to live through, uh, for the communities who are here watching these things Mm. happen abroad. Um, also let's talk about Palestine because there has been a shift. I think, you know, this is a community who's been experiencing, um, much like, uh, the Tigrayan community and the Colombian community is experiencing now, like years and years and years of indifference, <laughs> years of indifference from not just Canadian, uh, media, but media all over the world in, in terms of how they report, um, on the experiences of pal- Palestinians who are living in under apartheid, uh, uh, under a, an apartheid state. Yeah, you know, you said the importance of having journalists on the ground, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I, I want to start off what I'm going to say by um, reminding people that Israel this past weekend bombed the offices of 
the Associated Press, and Al Jazeera in Gaza City. And so Mm -hmm. here we have a nation, Israel, that has... Uh, control over two occupied territories. They've they've overseen a siege on Gaza, making it impossible for Gaza to be able to basically operate on their on their waterway. And at the same time, they have allowed uh, Israel's borders to be expanded through uh, importing basically uh, settlers a lot a, a lot from the United States to you know just take over um, take over Palestinian neighborhoods. And it's it's really interesting watching this from the Canadian perspective because it's kind of like seeing uh, our past in a very like accelerated and technological way, the way that Canada you know mm-hmm. did everything it could to destroy the the nations that existed uh, on this territory before Canada did, and uh, how that happened in a very different time. And so you know, there's cameras were a lot different, and there's no mass media, and 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 we're now living like the the aftermath of that colonial project in Canada, of course, remains a colonial project, but it was not a successful project because, of course, um, you know, the, the genocide that had happened did not wipe everyone out, right? There, there's, a, there's an incredible resistance and an incredible um, uh, holding on to culture and language and, 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 and political systems and all this kind of thing. And this is really, really important. And so watching through Canadian eyes what's happening in Israel is really fascinating from a, from one perspective. It's also horrifying, and it has been obvious. Like the uh, you know the, the 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 movement to have the relationship between Israel and Palestine called an apartheid state has has been on for what twenty years, like a long fucking time, mm-hmm. and the language. Yeah. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, there was a lot of people resisting it because it was like, well, no, you know, Arab Israelis have rights. They, they, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And, and as the far right within Israel has gotten more and more power, and as Netanyahu sees that his path to power really does go through, you know, colluding with the far right, um, it's this incredible moment where the, the, the nation on earth that had the fastest, most efficient vaccination program seemed to be racing towards a moment where it could then start going back to bombing Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, not only does the media coverage matter in this because we need to understand what the fuck is happening and we have to understand that this isn't a two sides thing, that this is literally a siege uh, from one nation on top uh, as an occupying force over another nation. Um, but it's also really uh, important for us to to keep in mind that this is this is also what happens when the far right at the end of a massive moment of trauma like a pandemic is able to so effectively manipulate and 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 attract mainstream politicians to their cause and the results we don't know what the results are going to be in 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 Israel and Palestine we're still obviously watching that but it's really horrific and it's going to get worse and the the catch up that journalists have to play because of years and years and years and years of 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 unacceptable um, bias in favor of Israel um, is is a lot. Like there's a lot that needs to be unpacked, and there's a lot that needs to be explained to people that may not have been paying attention to this. And I don't. I'm afraid that there's not enough time to be able to do that work and that education and that unpacking, so that Canadians really do have a better grasp as to what's happening there. And I'm that that really really does scare me. 
Yeah, I mean, it is, it's critical that we have an understanding of what's going on, not just because of the, um, uh, again, the, the, the importance of us understanding this, this really horrifying, this, this horrifying situation, but also because, again, Canada is involved in this situation, right? Canada uh, is a strong supporter of Israel. Canada provides weapons to Israel. And we should be having, we should have done had a long time ago, public discussions about uh, Canada's involvement in the repression of Palestinian people and in its support for apartheid. But we have not. And when I say that there's been a shift um, when I said that earlier, what I mean is that I'm seeing a lot more this time around, more than ever before, uh, organizations um, taking note of uh, the the sorts of calls that activists are calling for. So I've seen, you know, um, uh, uh, labor unions are taking positions. Um, the fact that it, you know, Jagmeet Singh made those comments in the House um, student unions are taking positions and I, and you know, you know, Nora and I know that for a long time, that was a really fraught, um, argument in the student movement. And so something has shifted, something has changed. And I just think that we should all, those of us who are listening to this podcast and are uh, invested in, um, you know, some, some form of liberation in the world for uh, repressed people, we should note how long it took to get to this place. Like how long it took to get to this place. And we are still in a moment where uh, Canadian media and uh, politics is not discussing this in the way that they really should be. Um, some of the first stories in the CBC in reporting on this were about Hamas uh, firing rockets into uh, Jerusalem. It was about uh, um, Israelis moving into bomb shelters um, and uh, using this really passive language to discuss what was happening to Palestinians. So I'm looking at um, some some uh, headlines from May 8th, and uh, one says, more than 200 Palestinians hurt in a night of clashes in Jerusalem, medics say. <laughs> I mean, and this was um, uh, the night that the Al-Aqsa Mosque was uh, targeted um, uh, during Eid. And I just, you know, it, that is fucking unacceptable that that is the level of news that we are getting um, to talk about this uh, this fucking humanitarian crisis, this attempt at ethnic cleansing that has been going on for so, so long. And again, Canada is intimately involved in this. And uh, as as the public, we should be able to, to say how we should be able, we should be having public discussions about how Canada is involved and whether or not they should be involved, which is the, obviously the answer is absolutely the fuck not. And unless they're trying to support uh, Palestinians, you know, like this is, we, 
this situation where we are so complacent with respect to our own involvement in international affairs and the repression of people and settler colonialism and the impacts of uh, neocolonialism worldwide is just, uh, it is unacceptable. And there are so many things um, from the political structures, the media structure that like um, work in conjunction to get to this place where uh, for the most part, we have no idea how to engage in a, in a conversation publicly in Canada about this stuff. Um, and it, it just, it, it, the, the cost of that is too high and it can't go on. Yeah, there's a real danger with the fact that our information from international sources is so paltry. Like, we have more connection to other parts of the world than we've ever had. Thanks to the internet, we're in this age where you really can find out the news that you might want to find out that might be local, let's say. But as the Canadian media landscape has constricted, the some of the first things to go were international bureaus because international bureaus are expensive. And oftentimes they're telling stories that uh, advertisers don't want people to know about, right? They don't want people to know about the crimes, mining crimes all around the world. They don't want Canadians to know how involved uh, we are in producing arms, right? We don't actually know this. And so the international bureaus, there's and so the international bureaus, there's literally no reason for them to exist as uh, newspapers or media organizations are being hacked to the bone. And the problem, of course, is that, you know, where local news can be replaced by new kinds of local reporting, international reporting can't really be. I mean, you can come up with some sort of interesting network of maybe, I don't know, some kind of journalist that's located here and there and there or whatever. But but that's difficult. That's not that's not the same as like reporting from Jerusalem in the perspective of Canada, right? Like we need to know what's happening in 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 Jerusalem and we need to know what's happening in Jerusalem as it's relating to Canada. And those are two different kinds of stories. And there's just not enough, there's almost no foreign reporting. And and so like people, like if you're listening to this podcast, a lot of times we talk about how to like really critically consume media. And I think that that's a really key part of this is to see what is missing and and why mm -hmm. is it missing and to 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 understand the 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 reason why that kind of information is often missing and and why it serves certain interests domestically and internationally to make sure that Canadians are really like in the dark about what our governments what our corporations are up to around the world and i i do think that like the fine point that things are changing is really, really critical. You know, I listened to The Current last week and there was a segment like I've never heard before on that show where like they had a guest who plainly called out the fact that what is happening right now in Israel is an attempt to enshrine Jewish supremacy in the law and to do so at the expense of everyone else that lives in Israel. OK, and, and, and the guest said this twice and, and another guest came on and echoed what the, that, that guest had been saying. It was so surprising. I really encourage people to check it out because it, and you have to listen to a professor who's super crusty before that. Um, and then you'll hear 
like a really great, <laughs> um, a really great uh, two interventions after that. And and it was just like said to me like, okay, maybe things are shifting here, but for fuck's sakes, it took so long, and it and it has been so unacceptable the way in which Canada has absolutely aided the state of Israel in its campaign of ethnic cleansing, while at the same time refusing to engage in any kind of adult discussion on what's happening there. I mean, I guess the only thing that I have to say in closing beyond this pleading uh, uh, with uh, the, the the media establishment and just Canada in general with, to like get its fucking act together is um, just again, a, a just how important the activist community is uh, when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, one of the things that um, is coming up for me in this conversation and that I'm remembering just over 10 years ago, um, uh, the experience of the Tamil community during the Tamil genocide in 2009 and how uh, that was another conflict where in in Canada, we weren't hearing a lot about it. There was almost no coverage. Um, and that community, uh, the Tamil community in uh, around the world did unbelievable amounts of organizing and actions uh, to to make sure that they could not be ignored. And uh, after uh, the Mother's Day uh, rally in Toronto that where activists, uh, Tamil activists and allies scaled uh, the Gardner Expressway and stopped um, traffic on this major highway. Uh, it, you know, after that, that moment uh, and, you know, people had been vilifying this community um, uh, in Toronto who had been doing uh, these, uh, uh, this, these acts of civil disobedience um, uh, it was after that that finally, 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 the news started to report on what was happening. And it's just, you know, I, I, I just have so much um, respect and, uh, you know, I just feel feel so deeply for these uh, communities that are that have to do so, 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 so much uh, to get a little bit of coverage, to get people to pay attention uh, to what is happening in their homelands and uh, it just shouldn't have to be that way. But I, I do want to commend all of the activists who've been doing all of this work, the Palestinian activists for years and years and years, um, uh, the Colombian activists right now who are uh, attempting to, to, to try to, to stop um, the, the ignoring of, of their plight, the, the, the Tigrayan activists who are doing the same, um, you know, this stuff does work. It works. Uh, sometimes it takes a really, really long time, but it does work. And the f in terms of it taking a really long time, that's where the rest of us come in. We have to refuse to accept a situation where we don't know anything about um, what's going on in the rest of the world. And so for this little listening community of uh, uh, Sandy and Nora fans, uh, please be a part of that. Be a part of refusing to accept bullshit coverage uh, on what's happening in Palestine from, um, from our 
uh, news media, make complaints uh, when we need to to the CRTC, um, demand coverage uh, uh, from different parts of the world, ask uh, uh, different news outlets, where the fuck are you on this stuff? Are you guys going to be reporting on this? Um, We have to shift the landscape and, uh, and make our own media sometimes too.